Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Event Industry News podcast. Um, this podcast is kindly sponsored by N200 GES, our smart event solution partner. For more information on N200 and its smart event solutions, please visit n200.com. Um, so a very good afternoon uh, to everybody joining our live stream today. Hope everybody's had a, a fabulous long Easter weekend. Um, Tonight's live stream will allow you to interact in real time with our guests, giving you the power to put questions directly to them, get your opinions heard if you've got them, submit your questions via the uh, live stream window on the device that you're watching us from, or you can tweet us at Event News Blog if you've got anything that you'd like to comment on or questions that you want to fire over to our guests. Um, keep your eye on eventindustrynews.com or download the brand new Event Industry News app, which will keep you notified of all the latest content, what's happening in the industry and everything that's happening on eventindustrynews.com. So tonight, we'll head over and, uh, and welcome our guests. We are joined by Noah Ball and Andy Payton, uh, who are from the Sunfall Festival. Um, I don't know a huge amount about the festival, which is why we've got the guys on tonight to have a chat about it. But I'm right in saying that the festival started last year, so it's going to be its second year. Um, guys, let's bring you into the conversation. A very good evening to both of you. Andy or Noah, um, who wants to tell us a little yeah. bit about Sunfall, first of all? Uh, yeah, I will if you want. Um, Far so away, Sunfall, Andy. Sunfall Festival did its first year uh, last year, on July 12th, in Brockwell Park. South London. Mm -hmm. It's a one-day dance music event um, in which everybody who attends the festival goes to a daytime outdoor event and then most people, although not all, go on to an after party at various venues across London. It was the brainchild of myself and um, my, my kind of side of the team, which is the, the Columbia group and the um, Noah's side of the team, which is the people behind Dimensions and Outlook Festival, um, it was I think it's fair to say it was it was kind of their their baby yeah. to start with, and, and Noah Noah and Joe from their end approached us guys about the idea of doing a London festival, um, and so that was about a year before, and last year was the first year it sold out. Uh, we had Jamie XX headlining, and um, it was a it was a fairly fairly big success. We're very happy with it. Noah, um, the, the idea of, of doing and launching a new festival in any guise is a daunting one. Um, I'm not sure if you guys had experience of doing the outdoor side of, of, the, of events uh, prior to last year's event, but um, taking on not just an outdoor element, but also running that in conjunction with indoor elements, all the ticketing, all the planning, all the logistics that has to go with that. Um, how long was this in the pipeline prior to actually being able to, to launch it last year? Um, I, th I think we'd first spoken about it. Um, it was at least, yeah, it was approximately 10 months prior to the festival taking place that um, we sat down with uh, the Colombo uh, group and, um, and went through ideas of how we could create an event that, that sort of made sense in London and an event that um, you know uh, that, that made it stand out against sure. the other London events um, my company have been running festivals out in Croatia for nine years um, mm -hmm. and they were all out big sort of fairly big scale outdoor events um, prior to that I had some uh, experience in sort of 
uh, concert and club promoting, but um, obviously then working within London, um, and especially with the um, with having so many um, nighttime events as well, um, the, the the partnership with Colombo. Uh, it, it made everything um, fairly uh, straightforward, um, and the I think the offering that that the um, attendees were given was it was a different uh, event to the other London festivals that are happening year on year. And and on that note, with with so many other events, not just music festivals, but with London hosting and holding so many different types of of, of outdoor event um, across the city, uh, how easy was it to to, to go through the admin, administrative side of things and get permission to do it first of all? And uh, how how easy is it to work with all the sort of the stakeholders in that particular part of what is right? If people look at where uh, Brockwell Park is, it's it's right in the middle of South London, isn't it? Um, yeah, so from a from a licensing perspective, um, it was uh, fairly simple. Um, the, the main point of contact for the day event was obviously um, Lambeth Council, um, mm -hmm. and then all of the evening time events um, was were fairly straightforward. You know, we were just dealing with venue managers. Um, uh, at, at some of the venues themselves were. Um, owned by the Colombo Group anyway, uh, mm -hmm. Fonox, um, and um, and so it was. There was the the communication in terms of setting everything up was focused in one direction at the um, the Lambeth Council, and then and then uh, multi-directionally for the evening with sort of um, each of the different uh, nighttime venues. Sure. Were there, were there other uh, venues considered apart, uh, outside of, of, of the one that was, was decided on? Were there, were there several options or was it always going to be that one because of its location and proximity to the evening venues as well? Um, um, we, we were quite keen for there to be a, um, a well-represented South London um, festival event. Um, the, you know, there's a lot that takes place in Victoria Park out in Hackney or um, yeah. And with the Hyde Park show, runs of shows, we were quite keen for there to be something that celebrated uh, the South London scene. And um, and it, in our, in the first year, I think yeah, a hundred percent of the venues were within that area south of the river. Um, and we worked with a lot of um, oh, independent record labels and um, uh, an artist that were based in. Uh, that were London based so so yeah it was it was it was a a good way to celebrate uh, the venues and the artists and the labels that are so supportive of of that music scene in in London Andy um, what's your um, your particular role um, in the team with Sunfall and, and how did the team evolve or how was the team put together because presumably you need to have a pretty strong core team of people at management level to, to help deliver something like this well, I think um, my my history before before uh, getting involved with the Columbo Group, I was the one of the assistant bookers for South Sport Festival. Um, mm -hmm. So the kind of the politics involved in in booking, and obviously I, because I booked the clubs, uh, uh, that that's probably the, my forte. And um, so the bookings, the festival came from myself and Noah, 
um, and then the promotions again was was my my team who do the promotions for the clubs and the team from those company who do promotions for the Croatian festivals teamed up and work quite nicely. Um, the production side, to a large part, is uh, Joe, Noah's business partner. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say, I'd say promotions and bookings and and the general branding and stuff would be would be my role. And and how um, with so many other events going off, and particularly summer festivals, when artists are, are, are being booked and pulled from one place to the other very very quickly, um, how early did you have to get on sorting the lineup this year, and and how difficult is it to secure the lineup that you want to deliver the 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 right show for the event, and and what are there any compromises that have to be had with certain artists and booking certain artists for certain times of the year? I think there's a, there's lots and lots of things that you have to navigate in order to get to your final festival lineup. The competition is obviously very very intense, um, but then we we have quite a specific audience in in mind, um, and that audience is is kind of lovers of underground music, underground dance music. Mm -hmm. It's very specific, and and this, what is specific about that particular that particular audience is that the artists who play that more often than not are less about worried about their money, less worried about the fees and more worried about the production levels and the sound and the sound quality. Mm -hmm. And the biggest, the biggest compliment that we received and the biggest takeout from year one was how good the sound was relative to other London festivals. Um, we, we really deliberately made sure that was our strength, knowing that in the long run that was the sort of music we'd want to book. And so we will never have been the capacity that we are and being the fact that we're not part of a we're, we're just an ind a small independent festival in terms of the people involved and it being self-funded so you know there's the majority of festivals in london and, and anywhere in the uk are owned by very very big multinational companies like live nation Indeed, who own yeah. several festivals and so because of that sponsorship they'll get in and because of their various ticketing deals They'll always have bigger budgets than us, and so we we always had in mind quite specific target audience and a specific certain type of artist to go with that. So you know, someone like Theo Parrish, it's not so much the money; it's more the the trust in the sound. And yeah. luckily, because year one went the way it did, we we were able to get artists like Theo and like Larry Heard to to come and play. And I'm pleased that you, you've brought that to our attention and mentioned that the, the quality of production that, um, that, but the sounds of things everybody was going for, not just the artists, but the, but, but the team behind the, the festival as well. Because something that you guys do and have done on, on your Facebook page, which I've not seen in many other, let's say, mainstream festivals put out there before, is quite a lot of um, technical information about the sound, about what systems are being used. Uh, about the configuration even of the of the line array uh, uh, columns on either side of the main stage. Um, this is, as you point out, something that's obviously key to the audience, to the artists and to you guys as as, um, as producers of the event. And one thing I would always say about the dance music community as a whole is they seem to be very, very savvy, don't they, about the technical side of things. They seem to be really savvy, maybe more so than and other types of live music and live entertainment as, as to what's been done there. One thing that you do put on your Facebook page was that um, you'd employed some of the very best acoustic consultants in the industry um, from the very, very beginning to help 
I would guess not just design the systems themselves in terms of the best sound delivery, but given the location of the outdoor venue, you're right in the middle of an urban area, you are having to juggle delivering quality sound to the audience, but presumably also minimizing the noise impact on, on the surrounding areas. Um, who was it that you brought in to, to do that in the first, uh, in the first instance? Um, in the first year, we, we used um, a gentleman called David Leversage, um, who's industry known as, um, as very much one of the, the very best uh, in his field. Um, and he, he's used by many of the biggest and uh, events, but um, also events that have sensitivities with their sound um, sound issues um, and um, so by by working with him from the start by working with um, uh, Martin audio um, for providing this the um, the, the, the main stage um, yeah. rig um, you know the the Martin audio MLA system is is very well known in the industry for being able to uh, avoid to, to to apply the sounds the best it can be within the area you want it to be yeah, uh, yeah. aimed, and, and you know, as as you mentioned, sort of the the hangs being placed several meters higher than um, than you perhaps would at another event. Um, you know, if you're in the middle of the countryside um, and you don't have houses within a hundred meters of you, then you probably wouldn't bother putting the your line arrays hanging them at such a height yeah, but yeah. um but you pay that extra money um to to guarantee that the the the, the tops are aimed directly down at the audience and yeah, then yeah. the um and then the the base bins uh, work on a cardioid system um, which can limit the dispersal of bass and actually uh, push it so it's only moving only moving forward whereas other non-cardioid systems bass frequencies travel in all directions 360 do, yeah. from the unit so um, that was one of the main things that we sort of invested heavily into to just to make sure that those people who were enjoying um, uh, that those those artists were able to listen to them at at levels that um, you can really appreciate the music, I guess. Absolutely, and and I'm sure you know a lot of people um, who have had experience of organising events, and even people who may be contemplating it, uh, are slowly becoming more and more aware, even if it's not their main area of expertise, at just how much control you can have with a really high end audio system now in an outdoor environment you know the quality of the line arrays and the quality of the of, of the base bins that you get now really can um, can be done in such a way that you can step even just a couple of meters outside of the of their main throw and you will hear it noticeably disappear and I suppose the beauty of that is not just the control that you've got over the peripheral sound but if you're wanting to put two three four five different arenas or stages into a quite a small area presumably that's also giving you a bit of scope to put other elements into the outdoor uh, side of the festival yeah uh, yeah yeah absolutely and and I guess also making so we, we only had this this year at least we've uh, we're sticking with a similar floor plan and that was only one outdoor stage and the other three arenas are in tents but 
uh, again, unlike certain other um, uh, festival events, um, they wouldn't bother walling the tents um, because Absolutely. if it's a sunny day, people tend not to uh, to head into the tents. Um, whereas for us, it, the, the the quality of the sound is uh, is paramount, and so actually making sure that the tents did come walled and um, and some additional um, things that we, we put in there just made sure that the the sound was the best it could be in all of the in all of the arenas. And and again, for anybody just tuning in or anybody um, watching this uh, after this live stream has been broadcast on our catch up video head over to the Sunfall Festival's Facebook page because there's some, I have to say guys, thumbs up to you because there's some great information. Whoever's managing that page for you, there's some really, really interesting information on there um, that people watching this this episode of the podcast can go and have a little look at and it tells you all about um, why the guys have, have done certain things and, and just to, to prove it, there's one of the printouts from one of the images on the page that, that talks about putting the walls on the tented structures in order to um, uh, supp create supplementary sound dampening and to maximize the levels that can be achieved within the actual tents themselves. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, that's the, the audio side of things. Um, when it comes to then uh, managing things like the, the, the people, the flow of people coming in and out, again, touching on the fact that this is in quite an urban area, this park, and if people look at it on a map, you'll see that there are main roads on all on all sides of the park. Um, what is the access like on and off when you're actually building the event, and 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 how difficult is it getting stuff into that part of London and actually onto the site? Um, last year, we um, we actually bookended um, the Lambeth Country Fair, uh, which is a free event. Um, uh, that takes place the weekend uh, following our our festival, um, and so there was a lot of um, potential sharing that could take place in uh, fencing, toilets, tentage, um, and and also having uh, the two events um, next to each other actually helped with minimising the amount of heavy plants. Um, that had to go on and off the park. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, if it, it, if if the events were several weeks apart, then the number of tracks trucks going on and off is is double. Um, so so yeah, we tried. We just tried to minimise any impact on the um, on the space. Um, to, was the, was the event, to also make was the sure other... that it can be used by the general public. Sorry, no. Was the other event um, something that you were aware of before fully committing to Sunfall Festival, or was it something you were made aware of once the planning had started and you just thought, "Hold on, there's there's a you know potential working relationship here." Um, it, it it wasn't a deciding factor on the weekend that we. Um... It was almost part of the team. Sorry about yeah. this. <laughs> Not a problem. The joy of live streaming. Don't worry. Um, the Lambeth Council is. <laughs> it, it wasn't. Uh... It's their event, so it was. It was very much in the in the initial initial planning. Okay, so as soon as you guys went to to the council, um, had that in mind, had the sharing in mind. That's that's a, it was a significant part of our original plan. 
Fantastic, and yeah, again, anybody anybody who's watching, who's worked with a you know a, a local or local authority um, event organizer, uh, I think it's fair to say that the experience that I've had of talking to to local authorities and and dealing with some of the local authority event organizers is that they do have a pretty proactive attitude. Um, I think some of them have had a bad press for undue red tape, but the way I look at it is that generally speaking, they're all quite positive with what they're wanting to do and um, and looking to actually minimize impact on the community but maximize the way an event can be delivered effectively um, and it sounds like that, that that's pretty much the experience you guys have had when it came to the ticketing side of things Andy I'm, I'm curious to ask with um, with the nighttime venues as well as the actual outdoor event during the day what is the yep. ticketing process and, and how difficult is that to organize? Do people buy one ticket that gets some access to the daytime and any of the venues and how does that whole process work? There's a couple of parts to it. So um, you, can, you, can buy your you can buy your tickets as a joint ticket and the specific, so you could buy the Phonox ticket, the Brixton Electric ticket, mm -hmm. uh, the Bus and Building ticket and so on and that would give you daytime and after party the access of your choice um, but then at the same time we do even with tickets early early doors before we announce the after parties and so those people have the option to upgrade so if you're a customer it's not it's not hugely um, complicated you either initially decide I'm going to go to this after party or alternatively you buy a day ticket and then decide an upgrade and obviously some people just just want to go to the day party so so that's fine as well in terms of how complicated it is from our end, it's pretty complicated. I mean, you, you get to, if you think about when we, when we had launched our after parties uh, this year, there was 10 after parties, but there was three different price tiers of tickets, the early birds, the super early yeah. birds, and the general release. So for each one of those tiers, there was 10 different options, meaning okay. that there was there was 30 permutations, but then there's resident tickets. You know, the, when it comes down to it, it, it's probably impossible for us to use a dozen ticket vendors like some festivals do. I, I was going to so say, did, yeah. Yeah, so some early birds we did with Dice, um, and we, you know, we'll, we'll do some day only tickets with a few vendors, but essentially you need a, a ticketing partner that know what they're doing. Um, in our case, we use Resident Advisor, who've been excellent. And um, the advantage of Resident Advisor is that anyone who goes and uses the site regularly uses the event pages. Um, and so it makes it a little bit more self explanatory because it's familiar territory to customers who go onto Resident Advisor. And we can also set up events on Resident Advisor for specific after parties with the joint tickets on there. Which again should make it a little bit a little bit easier to navigate as a customer. Yeah. So the answer, the answer is it's very complicated. Um, myself and Noah are pretty lucky that it's not really within our um, our day to day tasks to manage that <laughs> because it's really really complicated. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's obviously a price we we deem worth paying. And, and you said that last year's inaugural event sold out. Um, yeah. Have you kept the capacity? What was the capacity last year? And have you kept it the same this year? Or have you expanded things and, and, and gone bigger and better? Last year, the capacity was 13,000. 
uh, which sold out, and this year the capacity is 20,000. Um, so we've done a little bit Was there much, when you mentioned, Noah, that um, the site fundamentally has stayed the same and there's not been too much of a change to the site layout, what did you have to do in order to um, handle the extra 7,000 capacity? Was was it just a case of keeping things roughly in the same place and simply expanding the fence lines or what extra things did you have to, to put in place in order to make the site compatible with the, the larger capacity? Um, the, the, the site layout is in fact changing slightly this year but um, in terms of um, because we're appealing to quite um, uh, quite niche styles of music and, and people who um, are into specific artists um, the you can but we, we've increased tent size for the three stages that aren't out, outside yeah um, and and then in, in front of the main stage there's there's probably enough room for three quarters of the site's capacity anyway um, so so yeah um, the, the the capacities as, as long one of the worst things you can do is I think is uh, uh, probably not put the sometimes uh, events will will not increase the tent structure size yeah um, absolutely yeah uh, and, and yeah, as long they'll as you try can and keep the cost the same, won't they? They'll, they'll keep the cost yeah. the same, the same structure size, and just sort of hope that they can squeeze more people in. But similarly, going back to something you mentioned earlier about having the sides on the tent, if you have no sides on there, you can generally get a couple of extra thousand people around the outsides watching in. With the decision that you guys have got for various reasons that we've talked about about having the sides on, I suppose you've not really got any choice but to go larger in size in order to deal with an extra capacity. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So yeah, the the tent structures have all sort of grown in, in to to a similar sort of uh, ratio as as the um, as the increase in tickets. When it comes to sourcing the the suppliers at that time of year, and I suppose the difficulty may have been last year. I suppose once you get the first year under your belts and prove that it's a success. Generally speaking, I suppose you can go back to a lot of the suppliers and say, look, pencil it in for next year and, and great. But last year, was there any issue at all in sourcing the suppliers that you needed for a London event in the middle of summertime, um, when historically that's that's one of the busiest times of the year already for suppliers? Um, it it was fine, actually, um, I, I, because, because we've been... Um, trading out in Croatia for a number of years and we actually take a lot of uh, production equipment out from the UK so a number of the suppliers we used at the festival were the same people that we've been using um, for a number of years um, and our production company also um, they work on multiple uh, shows throughout the year so so they had some some good relationships in place and mm -hmm. um, and and so uh, as a first year event, it was actually smoother for us than than I guess for a lot of other uh, first year events would be. And when when you when you draw on all that experience and you and you look to plan um, for next year and beyond, um, are there already plans afoot for for next year? And is there a, a a grand design as to where you would like to see Sunfall in in five years time? 
Um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I think um, we need to. It's, it's early days still. I think to, to we, we need to reaffirm um, our position within the um, within the, the the market this year um, and in, in, increase the the good foundations that we've built. Um, so so at the moment, all our eyes are just set on. Um, on this year's event and, and making that the best it can be. You, you mentioned Andy that the capacity is up or can go up to 20,000 for this year. Is is it a sellout or are there tickets still available for this year? Tickets still available. Um, it's selling very well. We've already exceeded last year's capacity but yeah there's tickets available. Um, just to expand on what Noah said I think with an inner city festival was a critical mass um, because of mm. its yeah. costs of production in which you can start to turn a profit. But at the same time, I think what, what we're really keen on is my experience of London festivals in general, not all of them, um, but a lot of London festivals have a kind of attitude of let's just get through this year and, and you know let's survive financially because there's so much money at risk. But I think the main thing for us is, is we had such a nice crowd last year with a really cool crowd really nice uh, mixture and the again the feedback on sound was so good if we can do that again you know I think I think you get into a virtual circle where people go because they know it's going to be good and artists play because they know it's going to be good mm -hmm. and I think I think our long-term plan is is to get into a virtual circle over and above any specific number numbers um, in terms of forecasting a couple of things I wouldn't mind touching on just briefly before we, we look to wrap up today's episode of the podcast. Um, the first one is uh, communication with uh, with local residents. Uh, as, I, as I've alluded to earlier in the episode, um, the location uh, is in, uh, you know, it's, it's in the city. Um, there are um, residential areas around the park. What sort of communication do you have um, as an event with those local residents to make sure they're fully informed of what's happening? And of course, the better you do that, I think everybody would agree that the, the better a chance you've got to make the event a success because you're going to hopefully eliminate and avoid any pitfalls of, of angry residents. I mean, we, 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 we do send out... Um, a street team will go out and do letter letterbox drops with the majority of residents in the in the roads that are um, in the, in the sort of close vicinity. Um, mm -hmm. We offer a number of free tickets um, as well as then a discount link for anyone who doesn't manage to get one of the free tickets. Um, the we we again it's it's sort of we have to work with Lambeth Council. Um, they're they're the people who um, I guess take uh, are, the, are the most public facing part yeah. of the event. You know, it's it's, it's usually the council that will um, be the first port of call for any um, any issues. Uh, and you know, all events do come with with certain people who are sort of naysayers towards the event taking place or or whatnot and th these are just always um, you know things that you have to to, to work around uh, and work with the pe people in the area and um, there's always going to be someone um, 
who uh, doesn't like the fact that a bit of a public space is being used for a commercial sure. uh, event, but but then Lambeth have to run commercial events in order to meet their budgets so that they can run the free events. You know, Lambeth Country Absolutely. Fair is a free event that gets a hundred thousand people um, visiting the event, and they wouldn't be able to stage things like the country fair or the fireworks or or whatnot without the the income made by by working with people wanting to put on um, commercial commercial events. Um, the and, other thing that I sorry and, no. and generally for. Oh, uh, generally, for every sort of naysayer, there's always a few hundred people who are actually applauding the fact that you're bringing something of cultural worth to to an area. Um, you know, the crowd was one of the most well-respecting, nice audiences, and and the music that we brought to the park was, um, you know, it's it, it's not dance music for louts. It's intelligent music for um for fans of you know you know uh independent musicians and and whatnot and and, and the, the feeling that i got just just briefly on that note the feeling that i got looking through your website and various other social media pages is very much that it is a certain genre of music but it's n although there will be aficionados of that music it does seem to be something that is advertised and, and is promoted as being quite accessible to, to anybody, to a lover of any type of music, if they wanted to go along just for the daytime event and experience what it is, it, it does seem to have that accessible feel about all of the information that's out there. Um, I don't know if you, if that's a deliberate thing, but it's just something that I picked up on um, when looking through your pages. I think there's there's um, there's, a, there's a degree to which certain types of music are tribal, um, and then and you know you could be very very specific. You know, there's some there's some festivals that are just drum and bass, for example. Um, we touch on a lot of genres, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of people, a lot, a lot of artists will have things in common across the genres, and it's, it's, you know, I think what you're alluding to is that a lot, a lot of artists such as um, Roy Ayers or Larry Heard, you're playing, their music's quite warm and melodic, and so it's, it's relatively accessible in that sense. But I think the common thread through what we're booking across the genres is, it's that kind of it, it is a seriousness or or a, um, a a love for a certain type of underground music, and you know we we did a thing with Time Out. I remember last summer where certain artists spoke about you know, who they were looking forward to seeing at the festival, and, and Goldie was saying he loved Josie Rebel and felt that she was playing, and even though he said something along the lines of even though what we play is completely different, I bet we both listen to the same sort of music on our iPod. And I yeah. think there's, there's a definite, you know, there's, there's a definite something to be said that someone who will go and see the Black Madonna might also w want to go and see um, Moses Boyd live, or you know, I, th I think I think the crossover isn't necessarily musical, but in uh, attitudinal. Absolutely. Uh, again, just r r looking at the time and, and heading towards the end of today's episode, one thing I wanted to just clarify very quickly with both of you is, is the timings, because as we've, as we've made very clear during uh, today's episode, the Sunfall Festival is, is a combination of two distinct elements, the outdoor element during the day and then 
the club element in in uh, indoor venues in the evening. How do the actual timings work? So what time will the gates open? What time is the last artist finishing on the main stage? And how quickly do people then leave the outdoor area and, and head off to those nighttime venues? So the, so the festival doors open at 11.30 and the first artist starts at midday and the last artist finish at 11pm. Uh, the, fe the festival after parties start around 10pm and go all the way through. Some finish at 3, some finish at 4. I think some finish as late as 6. I might, I might be right on that. Um, yeah, about 6am. And, and what, what's quite nice, I, we, we're not a festival that goes look at this massive headliner um, the festival is, isn't dominated by one act being bigger than the other, or even headline billing. Everything's in alphabetical order. Yeah. Um, I want it to be an experience. So some people might leave a little bit earlier. Obviously, the majority of people will stay for, for whoever's closing the main stage. But you know, the experience last year was really nice because you know the sun was going down. It was a really nice sunset when Jamie XX was was closing the festival, um, which a lot of people remarked on, and then. Myself personally, I walked out of the festival and walked down towards Brixton in order to go to Phonox. And the street was just, you know, there's there's a lot of people quite it was it wasn't like when you leave a football match and the streets are packed. It was it was pretty steady. It was pretty nice. And um it's kind of quite a pleasant little you know, some people stopped some food on the way, some people went to the pub, some people went kind of rushed straight there. And it's it's I think um it's fair to say overall the shared experience of leaving and knowing the night is not over, as opposed, is a really nice feature of the festival and yeah. um, really nice common ground just because a lot of people, you know, you'll leave the festival and there'll be like this scramble for an after party because people have, have maybe had a drink or, or they're, they're ready to carry on partying. And I think that's a really big part of what Sunfall is and what it'll be in the long term. And I guess it, going back to this idea that there are after parties, but not everybody will go to those. You've got a percentage of people who might be wanting to leave the site really quickly and get to the to one of the venues. Yeah. You've got a percentage of people who uh, have already made that decision that they're going to go home. So unlike other events that finish at 11 o'clock and thousands and thousands of people leave the area, perhaps not with any idea about what they're going to do or where they're going to go or what mood they may be in. You know, presumably the area disperses relatively quickly, I would guess, because you've got that really good mixture of people who have got a definite idea of where they're going. Exactly. And one thing we noticed last year that there was, there was several hundred people who bought tickets who went to Coco for an event that wasn't our own. Um, and so, so we realised that quite a, a significant chunk of people had crossed the river uh, to come. And I guess we kind of had in our heads there would be a South London thing. So this year we've got, you know, one of the after parties is Giles Peterson hosting um, the Jazz Cafe in Camden. Um, we're doing Village Underground in, in Shoreditch, Mangle in London Fields. And so some people will be going right across London. More, more than likely those people will live in East London um, or North London and they'll, they'll be travelling back to, back to where they're from to go to the after parties. And again, we think that will really, really make it quite a nice, a nice dispersal and and not too onerous on the neighbours who live around there. Guys, um, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, I'm going to be wrapping things up very, very shortly. Before I do, um, I'm going to take a little look ahead to the next episode of the Event Industry 
news podcast um, and a fascinating subject. We're going to be looking at Androids, the first live music event of its kind. Uh, it's an immersive cinematic musical journey which transports the audience to a digital world, an hour-long live show that consists of projected 3D animated film synced to an electronic dance music soundtrack performed by live uh, emerging artist Sartori. So we're going to be speaking to the creator about how it's been conceptualized, how the piece works, um, and what it's going to mean for the attendees. Um, but going back to today's episode, we've been talking about the Sunfall Festival. Um, I should say, is it sunfallfestival.co.uk that people can head to? What's the uh, the website, guys? It's just uh, sunfall.co.uk. Sunfall.co.uk, and as I said, uh, search for the Sunfall Festival um, on whatever social media platform you're on, because they've got some great stuff out there. And we're going to thank our guests for today from the Sunfall Festival, Noah Ball and Andy Payton. Thanks very much for joining us today, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. We're going to be uh, yeah wrapping things up there. Um, head over to eventindustrynews.com. Um, for more information, there's going to be some links up about the Sunfall Festival. If you're watching this after our live stream, don't forget that you can also get the audio-only version of all the Event Industry News podcasts via iTunes. Um, today's podcast is kindly sponsored by N200GES, our smart event solution partner. For more information on N200 and its smart event solutions, please head over and visit n200.com. A huge thanks to those guys whose uh, who support helps to keep the podcast going um, and don't forget that you can tweet us if you've got any thoughts opinions questions ideas for forthcoming episodes of the event into news podcast tweet us at event news blog with any comments and suggestions that you've got once again thank you to our guests this evening from the Sunfall festival noah ball and andy Payton. my name is james dixon you've been watching the event industry news podcast and we'll see you next time goodbye mm -hmm.